Section three of Octavius by Minucius Felix, translated by John Henry Fries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter fourteen. Having finished his speech, Cecilius beamed with joy for the vehemence of his outburst had soothed his indignant excitement, turned to Octavius and asked, <sighs> Has Octavius, one of the tribe of Plautus, the best of bakers, but the worst of philosophers, anything to say in reply to this? Stop jeering at him, I interrupted. You have no right to vaunt your carefully arranged speech before the matter has been more fully discussed on both sides especially as the aim of your argument is not glory but truth certainly i have been greatly delighted by your varied and subtle arguments but i am more deeply impressed not in reference to the present discussion but to argument in general by the feeling that in most cases our attitude towards even the clearest truth is affected by the orator's talents and the power of his eloquence this, it is well known, is due to the hearer's easy nature. They allow their minds to be diverted from attention to things by the allurement of words. They assent without discrimination to all that is said, being unable to distinguish the true from the false, and they are unaware that what seems incredible may contain a truth, and what is probable may be false. And so the more they believe the asseverations of others, the more frequently they are refuted by more skilful debaters. Thus being continually the dupes of their own rashness, they shift the blame and the responsibility for their own judgment and complain of the uncertainty of things. They prefer to condemn everything and to leave all in doubt rather than express a decided opinion upon things that always prove deceptive. Therefore we must beware of becoming possessed with hatred of all speeches whatever which would cause numbers of simple-minded persons to be carried away by execration and hatred of all mankind. For those who are careless and credulous are deceived by those whom they thought to be good. By a similar kind of mistake they regard all with suspicion, and fear as dishonorable those whom they might have considered most worthy. This is the reason of our anxiety. Every matter is capable of discussion from two points of view. On the one side is truth, though generally difficult to find. On the other, a wonderful acuteness, which sometimes by its copious language apes the certainty of an undisputed proof. We must therefore consider each point by itself as carefully as we can, so that while duly appreciating subtlety of argument, we may at the same time be able to pick up, prove, and adopt what is right. Chapter 15 you are deviating from the duty of a conscientious judge, said Cecilius. It is very wrong of you to weaken the force of my pleading by interposing so weighty an argument, since it is for Octavius to refute each point, at present untouched and not yet mooted, if he can. As for your charge, I answered, unless I am mistaken, my words were spoken in the general interest. My idea was that we should examine everything most carefully, 
and base our judgment not on bombastic eloquence but on the solid foundation of facts but as you justly complain our attention must no longer be diverted let us hear the answer of our friend januarius who is eager to speak in perfect silence chapter sixteen then said octavius i will reply to the best of my ability at the same time you must help me to wash away bitter and disgraceful abuse with the water of truth i will not deny that at first the opinion of my friend natalis seemed so hesitating vague undecided and uncertain that i could not make out whether it was upset by his own shrewdness or wavered through error for his opinion varies at one time he declares his belief in the existence of the gods at another disputes it with the result that the indefiniteness of his argument makes the purport of my reply even more indefinite and ill-founded but i do not wish to believe indeed i do not believe that there is any craftiness in natalis subtlety and trickery are far removed from his simple character what then just as a man who does not know the right road when as is often the case it divides into several is perplexed and anxious not venturing to choose one or to try all in like manner if a man has found no fixed criterion of truth whether an ill-founded suggestion is brought to his notice his opinions always hesitating disappear altogether and so it is no wonder that cecilius is often tossed about excited and wavering in the midst of contradictions and inconsistencies to prevent this going farther i will refute and disprove his arguments however varied they are by the confirmation and establishment of a single truth thus he will be freed from all further doubt and hesitation and since my brother has given vent to his feelings and declares that he is vexed angry indignant and grieved that certain uneducated poor and inexperienced people should discuss heavenly things he must not forget that all human beings without distinction of age sex or rank are born capable of reason and able to understand that they do not obtain wisdom by chance but that it is implanted in them by nature even the philosophers themselves or any other scientific discoverers whose names have been handed down were considered common ignorant and half-naked before their keenness of intellect brought lustre on their name indeed the rich are so taken up with their wealth that they are in the habit of thinking more of gold than of heaven it is our poor disciples who have both found wisdom and have handed down its teaching to others hence it is clear that talent is neither to be obtained by wealth nor acquired by study but is created within us at the time when the mind itself is formed and so there is no reason to be grieved or indignant if any one whoever he be examines things divine and expresses his opinion it is not the authority of the disputant but the truth contained in the disputation that needs examination the less learned the language the clearer the argument since it is not disguised by bombastic eloquence or charm of style but is supported in its true character by the rule of truth chapter seventeen i do not reject the principle which cecilius has endeavoured to establish as one of great importance namely that man ought thoroughly to examine and acquire a knowledge of himself his nature his origin and his destination whether he is a compound of elements a skilful arrangement of atoms or preferably created formed and animated by god but it is just this that we cannot investigate and bring to light without an examination of the universe all things are so closely connected combined and linked together 
that it is impossible to understand the nature of man without thoroughly examining the nature of the deity just as it is impossible successfully to administer affairs of state without a knowledge of this state that is common to all the world above all we should remember in what respect we chiefly differ from the beasts of the field they ever bending forward with heads towards the ground are adapted to look for nothing but their food we with looks erect and eyes lifted to heaven endowed with speech and reason whereby we recognize feel and imitate god neither ought to nor can we ignore the heavenly brightness that thrusts itself before our eyes and senses it would be extremely like sacrilege to look on the ground for that which can only be found on high hence i am the more convinced that those who maintain that the arrangement of the entire universe is not the perfected work of divine intelligence but a mere ball the result of the fortuitous adherence of fragments of matter are themselves devoid of sense and understanding even of the power of sight lift up your eyes to heaven examine what is below and around you what can be clearer more certain more obvious than that there exists a supreme being endowed with the highest intelligence by whom the whole of nature is inspired moved nourished and governed look at the sky itself its vast expanse its rapid revolution whether studded with stars by night or illuminated by the sun by day you will at once understand how wonderful how divine is the equilibrium maintained by the supreme ruler of the universe consider how the moon by its increase wane and disappearance brings round the month i need only mention the successive recurrence of darkness and light to provide the alternate renewal of work and rest i must leave the astrologers to speak at greater length about the stars their influence on the course of navigation how they usher in the time for ploughing and harvest the creation development and arrangement of all these things not only needed a supreme architect and perfect intelligence but they cannot even be felt perceived and understood without a supreme effort of reason and understanding what again about the order of the seasons of the year and its fruits marked by constancy amidst variety do not spring with its flowers summer with its harvests autumn with its ripe and delicious fruits winter so necessary for the growth of the olives do not all alike bear witness to their author and creator this order would be soon upset unless it were maintained by a supreme intelligence further what foresight is shown in the insertion of the medium temperature of spring and autumn so that we may not be nipped with cold by a perpetual winter nor scorched with heat by a perpetual summer and the transition from one season to another as the year retraces its course is hardly noticed and does no harm look at the sea it is limited by the boundary fixed by the shore see how all the plants draw life from the bowels of the earth gaze upon the ocean its alternate ebb and flow consider the springs with their inexhaustible supply of water observe the rivers ever flowing in their regular course what shall i say of the apt arrangement of the steep mountains of the winding hills of the outstretched plains what of the various means of defence against each other possessed by animals some are armed with horns others protected by teeth others shod with hoofs others furnished with sharp stings some are protected by their swiftness of foot or soaring pinions the very beauty of our form declares the workmanship of god our upright attitude uplifted countenance our eyes set in the top of the face as in a watch-tower and all our other organs of sense in their allotted positions as in a fortress chapter eighteen it would take too long to go through all the details there is no single member of the human body which is not either necessary or ornamental 
and it is even more surprising that although we all have the same form each one of us has different features thus we all seem alike while in reality we are all found to be unlike each other what is the meaning of birth is not the desire of procreation implanted in us by god so that the mother's breast may be full of milk as the offspring matures and that the tender fruit may grow up nourished by its copious flow but god takes thought not only for the universe but for each of its parts britain lacks sunshine but is refreshed by the warmth of the sea that surrounds it the river nile moderates the drought of egypt the euphrates compensates mesopotamia for the want of rain the indus is said to both sow and water the east if you entered a house and found it carefully kept properly arranged and well furnished you would certainly believe that it had an owner far superior to all those fine things who looked after it it is the same in the case of this house called the universe when you see providence order and law prevailing in heaven and earth believe that there is a ruler and author of the universe more beautiful even than the stars in the different parts of the world but perhaps since there is no doubt about the existence of a providence you think you ought to inquire whether the heavenly kingdom is governed by a single ruler or according to the will of several the solution of the question presents little difficulty to the one who considers the earthly kingdoms which are modelled on the celestial when has an imperial partnership ever begun in good faith or been dissolved without bloodshed i say nothing about the persians who selected their ruler by omens drawn from the neighing of horses i pass over the story of the theban pair now long forgotten the story of the twins fighting for a kingdom of shepherds and huts is well known the wars between father-in-law and son-in-law spread all over the world and the fortunes of so mighty an empire had not room for two rulers consider other instances the bees have only one king the flocks only one head the herds only one leader can you believe that in heaven the supreme power is divided and that the entire majesty of that true divine authority is broken up it is obvious that god the father of all has neither beginning nor end he who gives existence to all has given himself eternal life before the world was created he was a world in himself whatsoever things there are he calls into being by his word arranges them by his wisdom and perfects them by his might he is invisible for he is too bright for us to look upon he is impalpable for he is too pure for us to touch he is incomprehensible for he is beyond our ken infinite immense and his real greatness is known to himself alone our mind is too limited to understand him therefore we can only form a just estimate of him by calling him inestimable i will frankly state my opinion the man who thinks that he knows the greatness of god depreciates it he who does not desire to depreciate it is ignorant of it nor need you seek a name for god god is his name names are only necessary where a large number of persons have to be distinguished individually by special marks and designations for god who is alone the name god is all-sufficient if i should speak of him as father you would think of him as an earthly father if as king you would imagine him as a king of the world if as lord you would certainly understand him to be mortal take away all additional names and you will behold his splendour on this point all agree with me when the common people stretch out their hands to heaven they say nothing but god and god is great or god is true if god grant is that the natural language of the people or a form of words used by the christian in confessing his faith even those who are in favour of jupiter as their supreme lord are only mistaken in the name they agree with us that there is a single undivided authority 
Chapter 19 I also find the poets proclaiming one Father of gods and men, and that the mind of man varies according to the day which the Father of all has appointed for him. What can be clearer, truer, or more apposite than what Morrow of Mantua says? In the beginning, heaven and earth and the other parts of the world are nourished by a spirit within and moved by a pervading mind. Whence come the race of man, flocks and herds, and all other living things? In another passage he calls that mind and breath God. These are his words, God pervades all lands, the tracks of the sea, and high heaven. Whence come the race of man, flocks and herds, fire and water? What else do we also declare God to be but mind, intelligence, and spirit? If you like, let us review the teaching of the philosophers. You will find that, although their language varies, they are essentially at one and in agreement as to this one point. I omit these ignorant men of old, who earned the name of wise men from their sayings. Let Thales of Miletus come first, who was the first to discuss heavenly things. That same Thales held water to be the first principle of all things, God being the mind which formed everything from it. This idea of water and spirit is too lofty and sublime to have been invented by man, but must have been suggested to him by God. So you see, that the opinion of the first of philosophers is in complete agreement with our own. Next, Anaximenes, and after him, Diogenes of Apollonia, teach that the infinite and boundless air is God. Here again they agree as to the existence of a divinity. According to Anaxagoras, God is the arrangement and movement of an infinite intelligence. The God of Pythagoras is also a mind pervading and diffused throughout the entire universe, from which the life of all living creatures is derived. It is well known that Xenophanes held God to be the infinite all combined with intelligence, that Antisthenes maintained that the gods of different peoples were many, but that there was only one supreme god of nature. Speusippus recognized as God a certain vital force by which everything is governed. Does not Democritus, although the originator of the atomic theory, generally give the name of God to nature, which sends forth images of things and to intelligence? Strato also calls nature God, even the well-known Epicurus, who pretends that the gods are either idle or non-existent, sets nature above them. Aristotle, though he frequently contradicts himself, assigns supreme power to one. At one time he calls mind God, at another the world, at another he subordinates the world to God. Heraclides of Pontus also, though not always consistent, ascribes a divine intellect to the world. Theophrastus, too, varies, at one time investing the world with supreme authority, at another the divine mind. Zeno, Chrysippus, and Cleanthes, similarly inconsistent, all three hark back to the idea of the unity of providence. Cleanthes at one time argues that mind, at another that soul, at another that ether, but, generally, that reason is God. His master Zeno considers the beginning of all things to be natural and divine law, but sometimes ether, sometimes reason. Further, by explaining Juno as the air, Jupiter as the sky, Neptune as the sea, Vulcan as fire, and, by similarly demonstrating that the other gods of the vulgar were only natural elements, he vigorously attacks and refutes a common error. Chrysippus says almost the same, believing that God is a divine force, nature endowed with reason, the universe, or the necessity of fate. He follows Zeno in his physiological interpretation of the poems of Homer, Hesiod, and Orpheus. 
diogenes the babylonian follows the same line in discussing and explaining the birth of jupiter the origin of minerva and other similar incidents which he regards as the names of things not of gods xenophon the follower of socrates asserts that the form of the true god is invisible and therefore should not be looked for ariston the stoic that he is absolutely incomprehensible both of them though they despaired of understanding it were conscious of the majesty of god plato speaks more plainly both in substance and expression concerning god his language would be quite divine were it not sometimes debased by an alloy of political bias thus in the timaeus plato's god is by his very name the author of the world the creator of the soul the maker of all things in heaven and earth whose great and extraordinary power makes it difficult to find him and even if he were found it would be impossible to speak of him to all men this is almost exactly what we say we both know god and call him the father of all things but never speak of him publicly unless we are asked End of section three.